Welcome to the Triclinium, a podcast named after the three-sided table used in the Lord's Supper, where you're invited to join the three of us as we think through matters of Christian faith, practice, and community. My name is Jacob Hawley, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Nate Lee and Eric Burgers. Uh, And today we will be continuing our discussion of the Athanasian or Pseudo-Athanasian Creed, uh, trying to hone in a little bit more on the second stanza. We're not going to read it again because it's very, very long, but if you want to hear a full reading of it, you can go to our last episode, episode 11, um, and check it out there. Um, Boys, how are you guys doing? Doing great, as always. It's a pleasure to uh, be here with y'all and uh, looking forward to this discussion. Likewise. Fantastic. <clears throat> Likewise. I yeah. Always look forward to the discussion. Probably, uh, yeah. you know, it might be important to mention this because we were talking a little bo- before the podcast about uh, the last episode and kind of got into the first, I guess, real disagreement um, over something on the podcast, like officially. And mm-hmm. the reason I want to bring it up, not to get back into that issue again, but rather to point to i think what the purpose of the podcast is and mm-hmm. we've kind of said that over and over again as we've done each episode but again the triclinium is the podcast where we we hope to be able to come and talk about these things despite our disagreement and walk away still saying we're friends and we can disagree mm-hmm. on these things um yeah different things are going to have different weights and they ought to be discussed and disagreed about but the idea is that we are able to sort of come to a common space and be able to talk about these things seriously so i think i think our disagreement falls in line with what the podcast is supposed to be about and i just want to reiterate that as we continue um to talk about the creed and and move forward yeah yeah, no, that's really good, Eric, and and I, uh, I agree full heartedly. I I remember um, reading or listening to uh, De Trinitate uh, by Augustine, and there's this bit where he's talking about how he's very very sure about his doctrine, um, and of course he's talking about the Trinity, so it's kind of important stuff, and then he says, uh, you know, like, show me. Like, he, he, he charges those he's writing against. He's like, show me where I'm wrong, and I would be grateful to you. Because I, you know, like, we're we're all... You, you get kind of the sentiment where he's like... Um, it could have just been kind of a rhetorical ploy, but I, I get the sentiment that he was saying, like, we are all made better by our, by our pushbacks on one another. And if we're able to push back on one another, it might mean that there is some sort of inconsistency there. So, like, our dialogues are what refine and, and sharpen our, um, our, our dogmatics and, and our belief and our, our theology. So, so I'm thankful for this podcast. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just like that, you know, that verse, everybody likes to quote all the time in every men's group ever, like iron sharpening iron, you know? (laughs) Well, it's a popular verse for a reason and I think it directly applies. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. for sure, for sure. Um, so we, right before we got on, we read the second stanza of, uh, the Athanasian Creed, um, and one thing kind of stood out to me, and I'm trying to find it again, um, I think 
it was yeah okay so it says um who although he is god and man to speaking of christ although who although he is god and man yet he is not two but one christ one not by conversion of the godhead into flesh but by assumption of the manhood into god that seems to me like a um like a really niche thing to get into and i think this is probably something i'd have to go back and look but i think it's something added from the chalcedonian creed i don't think this was in the original chalcedonian creed but i think it was a clarification of chalcedon um one of you maybe could check that on me but um just this idea that when christ became god i'm sorry when god <laughs> that was bad when uh, when god became christ when um when god took on humanity it was not a like dilution of of the godhood it wasn't as if um the godhood turned into humanity but rather took on humanity in addition to itself right um so i just i don't know what is that like does, does that intrigue you guys at all that that like that specific that clarification there like, why do you think they clarified? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's funny, because I think a really popular phrase that you might just hear in pop or lay Christianity is, like, God became a man. And I don't think that's yeah. wrong to say, <clears throat> per se. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think that kind of is where the that nuance touches, right? Am, am I... Yeah, mistaken in that, because I I don't think yeah that doesn't feel wrong to say because you'd have to nuance what you mean by different phrase or different words in that sentence or that phrase, but yeah I don't know I I've always kind of enjoyed like the language of like Christ putting on the vestments of humanity almost like the clothing type analogy i think mm. i think that can be a little more helpful push back on me if you want to because i i know this can get very tricky and and yeah i see yeah. with the language um maybe yeah what what are your thoughts about kind of uh christ's humanity being spoken about as like almost like vestments like he put on flesh or he took on flesh might be a more popular way of saying it yeah well so i think i think the thing that i appreciate about this clarification is that it it makes it makes um crystal clear that jesus was not god being transferred into human yes right so it's it's not like it's not like when when god became jesus he was throwing away all of his divinity. I think your word but that, the divinity was a good word to use. Yeah, there's no... Um, there's oftentimes... This is in canonic Christology, right? This, this, no, there's this notion um, stemming from, I think it's... Is it Philippians 2 or 3 that's the Christ hymn? Help me. I think it's 3. Uh, is that right? Uh, flesh flesh the verse out a little more. I'm, I'm not uh, trying to uh, consider yourselves as Christ considered himself not not uh, not uh, consider can not considering it um, you know like not not taking for granted yeah. his status as God but, yeah, but emptying yeah. himself right yeah yeah um, so 
the the word empty there is uh is the same word at the root of kenosis right and so this this idea is um that when jesus was born when god was born as jesus he basically set aside his divinity or parts of his divinity for a moment um and again this is a very like like we were talking about actually just right before the podcast this is very zwinglian this is a very like humanity and godhood cannot be mingled at all right like you can't have a a human who is also god it's either one or the other so you got to pick one so what ends up happening is it's like well he was like 75 percent human and 25 percent god right like it's like some picture like that where he's like he can do some cool tricks and stuff you know you do a kickflip but he's he's human you know like he's a human guy uh and so i think that's that's a misunderstanding of what it means that Christ is fully God and fully human. Like he has to be the fullness of both. Um, so, anyways, I just I, that caught my eye as I was I re, as we were reading it. I figured it might be interesting to bring up. Yeah, I think I said something to that effect last podcast too, where I don't like percentages when we're referring to the two natures of Christ because yeah. it makes it feel like the percentages can change, and he might like. Go, the cup might be f- more filled one day on one side, but then less another. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. even that language fully, I don't, like, it makes it feel like it can be full, but it can also, like, go back down or yeah. something and change to something else. Like, that's why I yeah, like yeah. Uh, R.C. Sproul's way of saying truly, because he truly was God, he truly was man. It It kind of empties itself of, like, capacity-type language, like, Christ mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is has a capacity for both. It's like no, he he was both. There's that's it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's truly and, this and, and truly that. And even beyond that, you could. I like that language because it it denotes that it's not like these. Okay, this is this is getting into some interesting territory, but these categories of God and human are not predetermined categories. For him to be truly God and truly human, in a sense, means that he reveals what it means to be both of these things, right? So that we don't know true humanity until we see it in Christ, and we do not know who God is until we see Christ. So humanity and Godhood are defined in a sense. It's not, so it's it's truly in that it's like um, the truth about God and the truth about humanity are found in the man, Jesus Christ. Um, break, okay, break, now, break that down a little wait, wait, more wait. for me. Like, what do you mean? I can understand half of what you say there. Like, uh, Jesus, Which half? <laughs> Jesus Christ's revelation of who God is. But hu- okay. humanity. Like, uh, let me ask a pushback question to hopefully get some more clarity. Great. Did any Old Testament figure pre-Christ understand it? what it meant to truly be a human, I guess, to use your language. I would say only Adam and only for a bit. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I thought. So you're meaning like the the fullness of humanity, I guess you could say. The the good yeah. the good like unaffected by sin nature, humanity, what it's supposed to look like for humanity to be unaffected by sin. The resubmission of 
humans to God, Human. right? So the, the or the or the the integral submission, yeah. right? Christ always did what the will of the Father was. Okay. Always, he never he never varied, right? And so, I think that's actually the essence of humanity is to be one who does the will of the Father, who listens and obeys, mm-hmm. and we haven't for a good while. So, <laughs> so. Uh, I think that Christ comes, and it's kind of a Romans five ish way of, of thinking about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. like he's he's almost a uh, like a an archetypal head over a new humanity, right? He is he is the new he is this the second Adam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that might actually be Second Corinthians, yeah, First Corinthians. No, I can't remember. That's helpful that. because I thought you were getting at that, like the the true goodness of humanity how we were originally created to be i thought that's what you were getting at i wanted to be sure Mm. that we weren't saying something like well we don't truly understand we're sinful because that's an integral integral part of being human at the moment and in this yes uh in the past like for the old testament and for human peoples now like we Mm -hmm. we can understand that about ourselves that part of humanity and i just wanted to be clear on that but yes there is a certain sense where sin has um using that word again diluted our understanding of what it means to live uh according to god's will and created order that sin has corrupted in our minds and in our actions yeah yeah. Nate, you haven't said anything. You gotta jump into it, man. I've just been really enjoying uh this conversation between y'all, just uh hearing you guys go. For some reason it looks like my recording is a little quiet, like on my uh voice recording, so I don't know if I I we'll have to uh listen to it after this episode, but hopefully okay. uh, the recording can hear me alright. So anyway. Uh yeah, I I really appreciate everything you guys are talking about and and kind of I, I think defining humanity and kind of defining what it means to be human uh, is really is really important. I was thinking about it, and uh, I think that some people would say that uh, well, the brokenness and the sinfulness is a part of is just inherently a part of what it means to be human. So if Christ lives a sinless mm-hmm. life, um, you know does that mean that he lived a a perfect sinful life? But I think that, I think bringing up Adam and how humans were originally intended to live or how they were created by God Mm -hmm. was to live in, in relationship and to do the will of the father, you know, as, as we see Adam naming animals and working, uh, working within the garden and, uh, being in relationship with God. Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, what what would you guys say to that? Like, I think Eric, you touched on it just a little bit, but I think some people would look at humanity and and see the brokenness and just see that as inherently a part of humanity. And you I don't know if this is totally mm-hmm. off topic, but you no, you said something interesting there that I think might be worth bringing up. That uh, people see it as like a basic part of what it means to be human that we're sinful. So yeah. if you look yeah. at it that way, would that mean? Like, if, if you rigidly stick to that idea, that would make Christ inhuman to you, right? Because mm. he doesn't contain that aspect of, uh, mm. of humanity. So that's wrong, in my opinion. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. I think sure. you both would agree that's wrong. 
because mm-hmm. Christ didn't because he didn't possess that he was living in light of what humanity was created to be in the first place and yeah humanity like us all three of us here along with the rest of humanity aside from Christ um does not live in that original created order because we sin and we fall away from the way God created things to be. So like the easiest way I think to picture it is like if you can just imagine a straight line in your head and you can point to mm-hmm. that straight line and say this is the way God intended for things to be and this is how it's supposed mm-hmm. to continue going. And humanity is kind of created like not created its own well in a sense created its own line that deviates off of that straight line and now we're living in light of the line we've created for ourselves there's times we Mm -hmm. obviously go back to the original line that god created and intended things to be but we tend to veer off and create our own lines as we go forwards Mm. christ lives exactly on that straight line that lived i should say as as a human being on earth not even mm-hmm. no not lived that's that's a bad way of saying it but you get the point christ lived on that line that god created things to be as a human being and he didn't deviate mm-hmm. at all from that line is is what we're saying mm. so mm. hopefully that was helpful and not too confusing but christ was not inhuman because he didn't sin he was perfectly human i think you could say instead though i i do think that that's actually like it's interesting to think about what it would mean. Like, I think that this thought experiment comes to mind pretty often when we talk about the sinlessness of Christ. Of, like, what did that mean for, like, when he was a kid? And, like, mm-hmm. he did, he just, he never, he never lied, he never threw a fit, never threw a tantrum. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, does that almost make him alien? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I think there's, like, the, the, the sense that I get when I'm talking to people about that is, like, that it's it's discomforting, mm-hmm. right, to think about a child being perfect, right? It's like mm-hmm. there's almost something endemic to childhood in our mind, right? It, the the proliferation of sin is so much that you know it's like, well, I made a mistake. I'm only human, right? Yeah. Um, like it's it's become a part. It's a definitional part for us, mm-hmm. uh, being able to make a mistake, right? And I think the true core of that is humility. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the true virtue of that is humility, but we oftentimes miss that that virtue um and and kind of just describe it to to sinfulness like just the ability to err um and so i don't know it's it's interesting to think about like (laughs) um you know christ would have been and i mean like it's very clear from his from his from the gospels written about him that he was an alien to people around him um he was truly human and kindred with us in that. But we were so broken that we couldn't see him as one of us. Mm. And he was purged from society repeatedly mm. because of it. Um, cast to the to the margins. That's good, yeah. I just that, that's interesting, right? Yeah, the uh-huh. That is interesting. Because there's only two figures I can think of um who because i used to think about this a lot I, I i haven't thought about it in a while but what was christ like as a baby or like as a kid yeah um <laughs> just blank I, stare I, I tend, <laughs> yeah i tend not to look too far into that because we have so little written about that in the scripture 
and uh, but the other the other example as well, I believe, would be John the Baptist as well. How did mm-hmm. how did he live? Um, that's not to say John the Baptist didn't also sin, but John the Baptist from childhood we know was indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the womb, and so yeah. there was. Um, uh, you know, something, I guess you could say a bit different about his life, um, mm-hmm. the way it started. So, yeah, I, 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 I would imagine Christ was perfect as a kid just, and, and that would have been odd for people around him. It was odd for people around him because he was in the temple, just amazing right. people like by his study and commitment to God, you know? And, uh-huh. uh but i i don't want to i wouldn't press too far beyond that because i just i don't think we have the grounds to be able to do that i guess well have you read the infancy gospel stop yet? it <laughs> <laughs> those are so funny dude yeah. there's one story where like jesus kills a kid and then like brings him back to life because his parents mad about it it's so funny there's so many i remember weird... hearing about that Story. Is that the, go- oh, is that yeah. the gospel? I have of not Thomas? heard of this. It's great. No, sure, uh, yeah, the infancy gospels of Thomas. Surely, surely you've heard of the the fake gospel, the fake gospels, right, Nate? Like the Gospel of Thomas, like Gospel of Philip. Yeah, they're all like yeah. much later uh, mm-hmm. historical mm-hmm. documents that claim apostolic authority. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Gospel of Thomas. Like, it starts out with infancy narratives of Christ. And just, there's two oh documents yeah it's it's i think it's also called i think they're both pseudonymously written as like thomas under thomas's name but um yeah one of them's the in- infancy gospels and one of them i think is the uh, uh is just the regular gospel and in the regular gospel jesus is quoted as saying that that uh women have to become men in order to get to heaven Oh, it's I remember that. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Crazy stuff. It's yeah. so funny. But so, honestly, you know. you know, obviously we reject those those writings, but yeah, <laughs> those are but so funny. Yeah, they're funny, but they're important because they reveal like common understandings of culture at that time. Yeah, like what does it yeah. say right. about yeah. the culture of the time that women must become men to go to heaven? What does that say about right. culture's view right. of women? And yeah. what does that say about Christianity's like total countercultural view of women as well? So Right. Anyway. Though some people might say that Paul fits within that category of yeah. culturalized. I know, don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far. I want to stay on Conversation for another time. Yeah. Uh, that is but. that is total garbage. <laughs> <laughs> uh Anyway. So, um, that was good. I, so there's another, uh, notion, just like an interesting nuance that I think I see in, I think it's a patristic idea, meaning coming from the early church fathers. Um, and be interesting to talk about this a little bit, but like it's Christ's assumption of flesh and flesh, like with a capital F meaning like all, all of human flesh, meaning like not just all humanity uh like all of the essential parts of humanity uh like you know like not um good way of thinking about it is it's not like the bread he assumes the bread and the meat and the cheese and the 
uh, and this and you know the lettuce to make the sandwich, right? The essential parts. He assumes all of the sandwiches, right? All of sandwichness. Um, so there's this idea that Jesus, when he assumes flesh, he's not just taking on like a body, a singular body, but Christ is acting on behalf of all flesh, and all flesh is assumed in his personhood. Um, now, of course, a more like uh, rigid understanding of humanity would probably say that's ridiculous, right? But I think it's oh man, it might be Irenaeus. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna remember later and get you know I'm gonna get mad at myself. But I think it's um the the common phrase that which is not assumed is not healed, um, and so the the idea that like when like uh this is good when we um when we are called the body of Christ that's not a symbol we are literally the flesh the ta- the the taken up flesh of Christ um as the church um so i just an interesting idea like what how would you guys think that that Christ's incarnation was the taking on of a specific flesh or of all of capital F flesh. Yeah, that's a good question. Part of me... Part of me doesn't want to go there because I don't think we have theological warrant to go there. If if hmm. I'm not... I just don't... Again, I, I have a very high view of the scriptures. I don't think the scriptures go there. And I hmm. think that is more of like a, a rationalization of what the scriptures may be teaching. Sure, you could probably pull different scriptures to be able to support that, but I don't think the authors had it in their mind to go to that length, um, and mm. nor am I willing to go there. So I, I'm willing to entertain that idea um, mm. without holding super strong views about that because of that. I think that's part of the danger of doing theology is we want to um, draw conclusions that aren't that nobody really had in mind when we're trying to base our our understandings on scripture and I just don't mm. I have a hard time viewing that uh, Paul or Matthew or what have you was thinking to that extent now you could say well this is Irenaeus He's, uh, you know, he's an apostle of an apostle. So clearly there was something going on there. Sure, right. you know, maybe. But I don't know. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on, on that in particular? I, I think, so I think there are passages. I'm not sure about this conclusion, right? I'm still, I still go back and forth on whether I agree with this conclusion um, that, that Jesus took up all humanity all flesh when he um when he lived and died um and lived again let me answer your question originally real real quick jacob sure. too because i kind of just rejected the question <laughs> but <laughs> uh, i think um i think it was yes to both of the questions you asked there you because you said like was it uh it was it did he entertain just a specific body or was he literally taking on the bodies of many? Is that kind of, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Probably. I mean, 
Not probably, because I don't know. Like, I would like to say yes to both of that, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. That would seem to puncture Christ's specific humanity a bit, mm. um, conception, mm. conceptually speaking. And mm. I don't know that I would be willing to go that far to say that. But again, like, even what I said just right there, I don't think you're going to find that really anywhere in scripture you're just going to have to draw inferences to try to make an argument for either or and Mm. um i don't think we should put very much weight in that basket i guess is what i'm getting at there yeah well and there's there is i think there's room for mystery right um sure but i want to maybe it's that i want to articulate a reality that i see brought in again and again and again in scriptures that I don't think the the traditional low Protestant understanding of Christology is capable of um, of is capable of of like explaining, which is um, so like this is an example Second Corinthians five uh, verse fourteen for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one me and Christ died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I, Like, what does he mean by when Christ died, all died? Or like um, in Colossians, I think it's one twenty four, when Paul basically says, I, you know, like, I, I suffer with joy because I'm filling up in my, in the body of Christ what is lacking, and it's in afflictions, and it's like, what does that mean? Like, like there's this 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 very cosmic view of the body of Christ. Um, I think uh, you see it a little in Romans five, I think, as well. I think you could just as easily take both of those passages metaphysically or like spiritually speaking, as you could physically speaking, which I think is what. Oh you're yeah. So I don't. I and I would. Yeah. My point is, I would I don't say, know. and I don't know that we should go so far as to. I don't even know if we should press into that. Really, is what I'm. I would. About. Okay. Yeah. I hear you. I. I would say the in Christ, the spiritual and the in the physical aren't divorceable anymore. Like you, you can't. It's not like there's one and then there's the other. Um, like I think in Christ, and maybe I'm saying this wrong. Like I'm starting to think like maybe that's not a good way of saying it, but. Um, like it's it, the spiritual reality is the true reality, right? Like, um, and that true reality encompasses all of physicality, right? Um, so like in the same, like I, I genuinely would say that the 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 scriptures, uh, I I believe from the scriptures that that the church is the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in like a meta- metaphorical way or a s- symbolic way. Like I think we are the actual body of Christ. That where Christ is on earth, He is through His body, and that's the church. We, we are the you could say the presence of Christ on earth, um, and that doesn't mean that we always act that way. <laughs> obviously, uh, there's tons of church hurt and um, you know atrocities carried out by the church, but I think that where Christ is present, it is in the church. Um, and so, like, for me, that distinction, that sharp distinction between, well, this is physical and this is spiritual, I think we almost need to temper that a little bit um, and say, like, is it true? You know, maybe not in what capacity is it true, but just is it true? You know, 
um, and then leave in what way it's true to mystery, right? In the same way that the Lutherans would say, yeah, Christ is present in the, in the, in the Eucharist. We don't know how. We're not going to try to parse out the, the, you know, the way that that's true, but it's true, you know? Um, yeah, I'm willing to say that I could see what you're saying and how you could draw that conclusion. I I would be more comfortable sticking to more of a spiritual metaphorical type um, understanding, of, understanding of the body of Christ. That would make more sense to me on and on its face. So I don't. Mm. I'm not gonna like anathematize you for <laughs> for thinking that. Thank you. I don't think appreciate that. Uh, well, this is important actually because like I think there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, it gets down to what are the. I think the important concept behind what we're saying here is what are what is essential to the faith, and that is something that I don't think is necessarily essential. I think it's important to talk about what you're talking about because I think it has important implications as to what we think mm -hmm. about the body of Christ. But there are certain mm -hmm. things that um, I don't think are essential to come in a, to a conclusion on, uh, and. The, re the reason I'm saying all this is because of our last episode, really. Like, Christ being deity, uh, in our view, is an essential to me, in my understanding. Yes. Um, yes. Capital E essential. Like, we eventually must come to that understanding. But, like, something like, uh, was the body of Christ, when it speaks of that, is it, like, actually flesh, or is it a spiritual sense? It's not an essential because... Uh, it doesn't become some different faith if you come to a different conclusion. Like we're still talking about, generally speaking, the body of Christ, and that, generally speaking, is accepted by both parties, right? So it's. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, whereas I think if you were to depart on the deity of Christ, we're talking about something completely different now. Like we're not. Mm. Uh, it's you have your Christ that I think you've come up with and then I have a completely different Christ that I'm talking about than you. So mm -hmm. it's it gets mm -hmm. at the very nature of who is God. Like and that yeah. is right, something right, I right. think to part over. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyways, I didn't yeah. mean to go on a tangent there, but I do think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, no that and that's fair. That's fair. And we can get into the the why behind how we categorize essentials maybe another time but that could be also be an interesting i do question. actually think it would it's, be helpful to have an episode on theological triage and stuff like that in the future or something like that yeah along those lines yeah because yeah that's Nate, that's a big critique of protestantism in general by outside traditions uh is that oh yeah protestants have no essentials to the faith and obviously yeah. i i've strongly disagree with that but it would be helpful to nu right. nuance that a bit yeah that's good that's good nate we gotta hear from you man it's been the eric jacob show it's terrible i know i've come in so i can see my recording and i can see you know when i speak and it's like just a flat line basically so <laughs> i apologize for not talking as much nate this has episode, flat line i yeah <laughs> i uh have really just been thinking about what y'all have saying so uh Jacob, just to reiterate the question, so it, it sounded like w with this question about uh, Jesus and the flesh and the body of Christ, you were asking the question of when when Christ became flesh, did he only become 
one person in that flesh like he's he's a mm-hmm. sole individual mm-hmm. or did he take on the flesh of all humanity is that a fair question mm-hmm. to say yeah yeah okay yeah i was uh i was just kind of pondering that and and then eric you said yes to both you know if uh if you can say yes to both then then that's kind of what you like i, I remember you saying that is that right I th- I think so. I I think I, <clears throat> I think I was saying I would be willing to entertain that idea. I'm yeah, not, sh- I'm right, not and, sure right. if that's entirely accurate. Nor do I am sure. I sure that we can draw that conclusion entirely from scripture. Sure. That is right. Yeah. I uh. Well, I was thinking about that, and I I was just mulling over the the yes to both, and it it made me think of um this book that I read, it's a really short book. It's called Epic by John Eldridge. Uh, he spends a lot of his time writing books and he has, a a whole, like, I think it's a ministry. It's called wild at heart and, uh, it's a men's ministry and his wife has a, a women's ministry and they minister to men and women with uh, different stories and whatnot. But I read his book Epic cause it was really cheap and it, uh, it just talks about the story of the Bible and the story of God's redemptive mission but it, it loops in like all the other fantastic stories that we know. Uh, mm. So he brings up like the matrix and Lord of the Rings and like these awesome stories and these kind of grand adventures. Mm. And uh, he kind of tells the story of the Bible through like a narrative lens. And so it's a really easy read if somebody wants to, to pick it up. I think it was like $3 on Amazon. So hmm. it's really cheap. It's yeah. just a really nice entry as well. But it made me think too of like what I would call the, like a, the, the uh the hero story or the um what's that called the the hero's journey i think is what the Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. narrative writing style is called and it made me think like one man who is an individual it it made me think of braveheart specifically so william wallace i love Braveheart. was yeah so william wallace was a mortal man from scotland who stood up to the kingdom of england um and so he was a mortal man, but he fought with uh, the weight of the people on his back. Mm-hmm. And that, that, and obviously any analogy or metaphor is going to break down over time. But the, I was just thinking about a hero who is an individual, who, who is uh, just a normal person or has, is a finite you know, person who has an end point, who can die, uh, who is mortal, uh, fighting for his people or for um for for his kingdom or for whatever else and he kind of takes on that mantle and he becomes like their champion so to speak mm-hmm. you know and like mm-hmm. it, in braveheart spoiler alert if you haven't seen but it's like a 30 year old movie so i don't know what to tell you uh william wallace is uh captured and is killed in a pretty brutal way and i think if i remember the story correctly eric you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think that 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 death helps to inspire the rest of Scotland to continue fighting against England. Yeah, there was that uh, pseudo king of Scotland, kind of, um, that right. England kind of propped up. But he had a kind of an affinity, I guess you could say, for William Wallace. Uh, mm-hmm. He sold out William Wallace to the English king, and he horribly regretted that mistake because of its implications for Scotland and William Wallace yeah. himself. So, yes, William Wallace's death inspired that pseudo-king to really take up his mantle and lead Scotland against against England. 
and I believe they won that battle, if I'm not mistaken, afterwards. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, interesting. Uh, it, so it, it, uh, it really made me think of, like, you know, when I, I'm sure that when William Wallace was killed, you know, he, he was, like, Scotland's champion. And so when he was killed, I'm sure the people, they, they felt the weight of that. Uh, mm. And then, I mean, just like now to kind of make up the rest of the analogy, uh, you know, imagine like William Wallace coming back, being, you know, resurrected or coming back as Gandalf the White or whatever, you know, and <laughs> inspiring the, you know, his people to continue moving forward, uh, you know, because he's he's seen as more than just uh, himself he's seen as like the as the as the people like as the like mm. the the leader of the mm-hmm, people but mm-hmm. it's like I, i'm trying to think also of like like in sports there's the the captain of the team you know and oftentimes they'll say that the mm-hmm. captain of the team is the essence of the team and so mm. if the captain is feeling awesome you know he's he's upbeat and he just has this energy about him that everybody else builds off of and he can inspire an entire team to push forward and and do their best but if the captain is down and is hurt or is failing and can't figure it out and all this stuff like or injured uh it can just bring down an entire team so it's like Hmm. it's like one person who is a mortal person can also be kind of the essence or the the broader representation mm. of a group of people. Mm. And so I, mm. I, I'll i offer it to you guys if that makes sense or if that, I mean, obviously any analogy is going to break down after a certain point, but I mean, as mm. we think about the the flesh of Christ, you know, he was an individual, but I think mm. in some ways he did come and he did represent humanity in this kind of broader way. And, uh, you know, obviously, Eric, this isn't an essential line, but it is kind of an interesting thought experiment. So I'll, I'll kick it to you guys and ask if, if that's a fair analogy or a fair Well, uh, well hold on, hold on for up. just, yeah, hold on just a second. Because I do think uh, it probably would be like second tier or something. It is essential to say that Christ represented humanity. I think that's okay. in, in yeah. some way. That mm-hmm. is essential. So you're right there. I think what Jacob is saying, though, is that Christ flesh literally in some way was the flesh of humanity like physically is what he's saying so i think your view and what you just said right there supports probably more where i would land of like a kind of metaphorical representation of humanity um Mm -hmm. whereas jacob i think is getting into something more tangible like literally physical like his flesh Mm. was was his people's flesh so that's why I said something like, uh, I think that would puncture the specific embodiment of Christ as his own person, I guess, like human person. Um, but I don't, I could see, I, I kind of see what Jacob said. I would have to talk more about it to, to understand it further. But um, anyways, I, hopefully that yeah. was helpful. No, thank you for clarifying. I, I appreciate what you said. Uh, Jacob, would love to hear from you. Yeah, so um, I think this actually might be helpful. Um, here's the way I think I, I kind of I, I picture it working. And again, this is this this is where, like Eric was saying, like we don't have maybe we shouldn't venture too much into this territory. So I'm gonna this will be this will be explorative theology, not dogmatic theology, right? Um, but just, here's kind of how I see it. 
working out. Christ lives a specific and individual human life on earth. Um, he, he brings the life of God into the life of humanity in this specific and, and located individual named Jesus. Um, and then I would say that that life is the life that the Spirit works in us. So that in a weird sense, it's like almost like you you almost have to collapse time for this. That collapse, or or you have to you have to think of time as bending in on Jesus. That so that really Jesus is the end of the age. When when they say all those things about like the end of the age has come and all that stuff, it's not like they're not talking about timelines. This is where it gets kind of wild. Is they're not talking about timelines. They're talking about the final revelation of of God or the the culminating revelation of God to humanity in Christ mm-hmm. that is the end of the era and that all of all of time especially the future on bends in on the person of Jesus so that the body of Christ is on on one hand located at the right hand of the father now but the body of Christ is also located on earth and the you could say it's very similar i would say to like the the catholic understanding of stigmata where like you know how um saint francis i don't know if you've heard this before but saint francis is is said to have developed holes in his hands uh that just like naturally occurred or supernaturally occurred as a mark that he was walking like christ so like these like bloody holes kind of appear and and it's a it's a sign that he he walks so okay i'm not saying that that's a reality but what i would I, I don't know, right? I, yes, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Keep going. <laughs> but but I do think that the, there are almost these moments in the Christian's life where we can see the the we can see the life of Christ being lived out in us mm-hmm. as we die to our sin, as we are called to obedience, and as we obey, as we put our life on the line for the sake of others, as we go out in love for the neighbor, right? There's like this, there's almost this like, this hearkening to a humanity that is not ours in our minds. Um, and I'm not sure that that's just a consciousness thing. I think that might actually be a cosmic thing. I think it might be that it's not just that we're experiencing it or reminiscing on it. I think that it might be that Christ's spirit is actually working out the life of Christ in us, um, drawing us, like Jesus says, towards the cross so that we are all walking the same path to Golgotha, we just aren't walking it located where Jesus was, right? We, we, we walk it in a, um, in a very real but, uh, but abstracted way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so that would be kind of how I think about it. Would you be willing to say that, oh, this is, yeah, this is really tricky, um, the whole union between uh, experience and physicality is tricky, would you be willing to say that that reality that you're talking about um, between like the spirit of Christ working out within us is more of an act upon the soul of a human being which plays out in the physical flesh than it is uh, somehow like the reverse of that or something? Um, good question. I think... Maybe I get hesitant about the dualism, but I understand that there is a dualism 
at some degree, whether or not they're inseparable or not, there are two, you could say there are two parts to humanity. Um, you know, this maybe is, three, depending on how, how you, how you look at it. This is why I'm, I'm more willing to just leave these kinds of conversations to mystery and say, well, yeah, that, that seems plausible, or I could see how you think that rather than drawing a hard line conclusion, because sure i don't know how we can get there from like from scripture explicitly i should say you could mm-hmm, argue mm-hmm. for implicit evidence and things but this is something that i don't think is explicit within the scripture so like i'm willing to say that um and i've been noticing this more and more about different concepts in christianity i i love the both and uh dichotomy that is repetitively present in uh like different doctrines within Christianity. So Christ was both God and human. Uh, I would say for the scriptures, from my personal view, it was written by humans and God. It was, Mm -hmm. um, you could say with the human body, you know, we're both body and soul. And, you know, people will try to take each of these things and say, and try to draw further logical conclusions to say, to disprove one or the other, you know, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the idea of what I believe is called an antinomy is, I think, the mm-hmm. way J.I. Packer has put it, um, mm-hmm. something I'm growing more fond of. I'm comfortable with saying that two seemingly contradictory things just are, rather than uh, saying that they must contradict one another. Um, one might call that a dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, all of those things I just mentioned, I don't think are contradictory to one another and can be reasonably reasonably explained that both exist at the same time. Or like another one is like, um, God is totally sovereign over human beings and and actions, in my view again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And humans are responsible for their actions at the same time. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, like... Yeah, when we start to, I guess what I'm pushing back on here is drawing logical conclusions like we're doing right now, while helpful, I think, and I think should be pursued in some capacity, can become dangerous if we go too hard line, mm-hmm. because we're going to start anathematizing each other over um, lowercase e essential things, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, and, and yeah, and like I said, I... I I don't know. I've found that I prefer theology that is explorative over theology that is dogmatic because amen. dogmatic theology is like well, you know it's it's important. <laughs> it's very important, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's also um, boring at some point. Like you can get like because it's it's all it's limited, right? Because there is a set number of of essential doctrines you could say now how many are there you could debate that right but mm-hmm. um i think explorative theology allows us to kind of meld adoration and wonder and mystery with the words of scripture mm-hmm. and and like it allows us to kind of play in the you could say play in the sandbox of scripture right um and i i just enjoy that i think that's a lot of fun so Yes. No. I. This would. This is not something that I would. I would like, you know, write in my doctrinal statement or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it's got some 
teeth to it, and I'm wondering just how far it goes, or, you know, yeah, um, yeah, that kind of thing. I don't want to downplay explorative theology because I do think, in some sense, like you're saying, it is important. Um, however, here here's the dichotomy in my mind: the danger with explorative theology is theological liberalism. At the end of the day, you go somewhere. Um, that's not spent, meant to be gone, or you draw conclusions that aren't meant to be drawn, and all of a sudden we find ourselves denying essential doctrines. So there has to be right. some sort of union between conservatism and liberalism, between uh, dogmatics and exploration. So, yeah. um, like I said, to go back to our disagreement the other day, um, the deity of Christ is a hard line that the church, I believe, has always believed and has always thought is necessary, um, a necessary function of salvation that has to be a hard line drawn. But that doesn't mean that we can't, like, explore the meaning of the deity of Christ further, you know, and, mm -hmm. and talk mm -hmm. about it further. It's just there are some things that have that can be explored and talked about, but there are some things that I don't th like Christians have to draw lines somewhere. You know, Matthew seven has to mean yeah. something to somebody, right? And yeah. like I like depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you has to mean something to somebody, and so um, I think yeah. you know it's helpful to talk about these things to find where those lines are. But we have to be very careful that we ourselves are not um, inching towards crossing over that line. And sure, um, yeah, sure. I, I I think dogmatics acts as the boundary lines of the sandbox, right? You can play in the sandbox as long as you're not going outside these walls, right? Yeah. Um, it's the walled garden, oh, right? Yeah, the garden is open. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like that. But there's walls, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, I, and that's why I think my, the richest um, exploration comes from conversation and and imagination, bouncing out of the creeds. Which is why I thought it would be fun to bring it up here and now because mm -hmm. we're we're exploring a creed, right? Mm -hmm. Something that is like of the dogmas, like the most you know, like creeds are like the most central mm -hmm. of of Christian dogma, and yet even here. You can find these little openings into the sandbox, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say too, because I I think explorative theology uh, is really just turning your mind onto the mystery of God, um, mm. and I think that uh, you know, like Jacob, you just said, the explorative theology is informed by dogmatic theology dogmatic theology does mm -hmm. form the borders you know it like like a creed is a great example because it acts as the starting place for explorative theology mm -hmm. because we're within these uh, these passages or these sentences or whatever and it's like oh my gosh let's let's talk about this like let's let's break this down and think about this and turn our mind on our on our divine creator and think about these beautiful things mm -hmm. and um, and then you know when we stray outside it's like oh we it's, think about this it's like well that contradicts the dogmatic theology so right we, we right. were probably out on a limb out there but you know like a great example i think that we did on this podcast is thinking about what the new creation looks like you know like 
Like, are there seasons? Is there rain when when God's rule uh, is here on earth? You know, these beautiful things that I think ultimately will be left to mystery. You know, it's really hard to come up with a yeah with a sure. hard line on yeah. that. You know, but even thinking about that, I think it just turns our mind. You know, it's almost like prayer where we we, we submit ourselves mm-hmm. into into the the view of God and uh, into our our proper place of worshiping God. Um, there's something beautiful about it. So like everything, there's a beautiful mm-hmm. aspect and then there can also be a dangerous aspect too. So, you know, we have to look yeah. at explorative theology carefully, you know, and not let explorative theology become the dogmatic theology because, uh, you know, let, like Eric said, the balance between conservatism and liberalism, and that's not political views that conservatism yeah. just meaning more traditional, uh, thought out foundational uh Mm -hmm. views of theology and liberalism meaning uh just a a broader spectrum of thought and kind of going out on limbs from the trees so uh Mm -hmm. perhaps those were bad words to use i i think no not at all no i think jacob's words with uh exploratory versus dogmatics is those terms i think conservatism and liberalism are a little too uh packed to use <laughs> well yeah they, sure, they're sure. definitely politically charged but like uh, i think that it's good for people to think about just those words outside of a political context because in theology there's definitely conservative theology and liberal theology and uh that that bleeds into kind of cultural uh areas or topics or whatever but that's not the root yeah. of of the word itself so like a tree metaphor you know conservatism would be like the trunk and the roots of the tree and liberalism would be kind mm-hmm. of the branches as it as it extends out from conservatism uh, mm-hmm. and some extend too far out. So, <laughs> you know, and those yes. are they yes. break or they fall or they extend too far beyond outside of the realm of conservatism. But uh, uh, but on the other hand, it can be exhilarating going out on the limb. Right. So it's the question of how far out do you go before you fall? Right. Yeah. Well, like fruit on a tree to keep with this metaphor fruit is grown out on the limbs but that is incapable without the foundation of the trunk and the roots yes so yeah that's it, great that's great yeah dang trees what are a great awesome. metaphor nate tree trees are amazing <laughs> trees are metaphors great. we love trees <laughs> i'm sick of trees mm-hmm. <laughs> you're sick of trees <laughs> I do. For, Get out. There's a lot of trees. In <laughs> for for, yeah. co- for context, I, I do tree care for a job, so I work with trees every oh. day. So. <laughs> That's Welcome a hard line. We're I, do nothing, it, I do nothing. I do nothing but cut trees down and shred them to dust. <laughs> Just mass genocide of trees. Yeah. Eric oh, is a man. deconstructionist. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Let it be known, I am in no way a proponent of deconstructionism or theological liberalism in any sort of fashion. Yeah, except for if it's explorative, maybe, sometimes. I think, yeah, I think the word explorative has different implications than liberalism does. So that's why I said, like... Maybe. Yeah. Well, hey, to even maintain the metaphor further, sometimes you need to prune branches, Eric, as you're aware... And so when branches become unhealthy or when they extend too far or when they damage the tree itself or they're infected or whatever, you prune it and you, Mm. you remove that from the tree in order for, in order to maintain the tree's ultimate health. 
So in some mm-hmm. cases, there are examples of liberal theology or explorative theology that need to be pruned. And they're like, this, this is not of, of the foundation. You know, this is outside of, this is going to damage the whole. Yeah. And, uh, so that it's going to damage, just think about a tree when you think it's, about, <laughs> it's going to, it's going to damage the branch as well. Cause I think about Christ's yeah. metaphor, those branches that are pruned and cut off, what happens next to them? They're thrown into the fire and that's yeah. the danger of, of what we're talking about here. So, um, we're we're coming pretty close on time. Maybe we should. I think that's a pretty good place to wrap <laughs> yeah, it up. Maybe that's a that's up. a great way to la- wrap up. Is you might burn forever. Just know that. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we're laughing, but Nate... we do believe that on some level. If <laughs> oh, but but it's just it's just a funny thing to end with. Yes. Uh... Yeah. Well, yeah. Let let's yeah. not end on that then. Let's let's go to uh, John fifteen where he says that. Uh... Mm-hmm. So, so John 15, this is where Jesus teaches about the vine and the branches. Um, and so uh, as you read scripture, you'll see a lot of natural uh, like analogies or, or analogies and metaphors based in nature. And this is no different. So I'll start in verse 5. Yeah. Uh, Jesus says, this is Jesus speaking, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Hmm. And I'll stop there. Just as a, a word of encouragement that uh, we, we need to remain connected to Christ because uh, he is the vine and, and we are the branches. So uh, the encouraging part is that if we remain in him, then he is our source of life. Uh, he is the one that bears fruit in us and we are ultimately connected to him. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we remain connected to him through his word, through maintaining a relationship with him. Uh, through ultimately, I think what we talked about earlier, uh, we uh, strive to do the will of the Father. We we connect mm. to Jesus's representation of humanity, uh, that straight line that Eric talked about, that Jesus represents constantly uh, being in relationship and fulfilling the will of the Father. Uh, I, so that's true humanity, is being submitted to God in such a way that you are in relationship with him, that you are following his will. Um, false humanity, what we make it out to be, is being disconnected from the Father, ultimately pursuing selfish ambitions. Um, so true humanity is actually losing ourself and connecting mm. to the Father. False humanity is where we only accept ourselves. I think about the greatest commandment. You know, Jesus says, and we can kind of read into this a little bit to connect it to what we were talking about. True humanity, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Um, with all your heart and your mind and your soul and to love your neighbor as yourself to notice where where you are you are you're in the picture but you are being used as an example to love those around you you know mm-hmm. it's a, it's assumed that you know you you deny yourself you know you you go out and you are among others and loving them and you love God that's true humanity that's what Jesus represents for us hmm it's good. 
Eric, do you want to close us out? I don't know. I forget what the saying is. I was sitting here thinking, what do we say? What do we close out? <laughs> so no, yeah. no, I do not want to I, close out. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it, Eric. I'll yeah. do it. Listen, listen, and you'll do it next time. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Triclinium. We're really grateful. If you have any questions or thoughts, go ahead and email us at sophomoros, which is in the bottom right of the podcast player, um, spelled out S-O-P-H-O-M-O-R-O-S. Lots of O's in that one. Uh, sophomoros official at gmail.com. And as always, may Christ be exalted. <laughs>